Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to all the dads and grandparents that are here, especially grandpas. And we thank God for the influence that we have all received from our dads and all the dads here that are in that process of still um, influencing their children, their families to become closer to God. It's a joy to be back here again at North Holland Reformed. Um, So much has changed. Uh, When I was a seminary student, and I was not yet married, I had met, uh, I was dating a girl who then became later my wife, Corrine, and she's here with me this morning. And North Holland needed someone, a seminary student, to to come in, and they asked if I would do youth group, and I taught, I think, a, a Sunday school class. And also, I was the choir director. I think back to that, and I had absolutely no... I'm musical, but I'd never directed a choir before that, nor have I ever directed a choir since then. (laughs) (laughs) But you taught me a lot. And just driving, now we've lived in Holland as a family, my wife and I, for uh, about 12 years now, almost 12. And after... uh, We finished our year here at North Holland. It was during that year, uh, at the end of that year, and in the summer that we got married. We were engaged during the time we were here. And then I finished, I went on internship for a year in Grand Rapids, and then my last year of seminary. And then we served a church in New Era, New Era Reformed Church. It's about 90 miles north of here, near Silver Lake and Stony Lake, those areas. Then God called us to Jenison, right outside of uh, Grand Rapids, still in Ottawa County. And uh, it was a new church start, almost new when we came there. and had gone through a really difficult conflict, and classes almost uh, disbanded the church. That's how bad it was, and asked me to come in and try to take the little bit of remnant that was left and see if we could do something. That was in the difficult years of the early 80s where we had a recession, a rather difficult one. Interest rates at that time were like 18 to 20 percent. Can you imagine that today and what that would do to the housing market? But God was good. It was, those weren't easy years, but uh, it was not a very, un, it was an unusual experience, but a very good one. And during those years, I mean, the name of the church is Hager Park Reformed Church, and people say, well, where's that? <laughs> I always had to chuckle. When you name a church after a location, then people still ask you where it is. You say, well, you know where Hager Park is? Oh, yeah. Well, it's across the street. Oh. <laughs> I imagine maybe some people say that about North Holland. You know where New Holland Street is? 120th? Oh, well, that's where it is. Good. Uh, we were there a number of years, and then God called us to Iowa. Now, I'm from Kalamazoo. My wife's from Grand Rapids. Uh, we're Western Michigan people. And then we went out to Northwest Iowa. With our children, we ended up being out there for 16 years, where I was the senior pastor of the First Reformed Church in Orange City, a large congregation in a small town, but it's also the place where Northwestern College is, a sister college to uh, Hope College. And it was there, in fact, I remember my wife and I talk about this often, when we went out there, our oldest daughter said, well, if you think I'm going to go to Northwestern College, she was just in high school, just almost ready, well, she was in middle school at the time. I don't think so. I want to go to Hope. We said, that's fine. Well, Dr. Boltman, who was later become president of Hope, was at that time president of Northwestern, and he recruited her pretty heavily. And so 
As is often true with families, uh, our oldest daughter had a very good experience at Northwestern. It ended up that all four of our children went to Northwestern College. And our youngest, our son, who was only a few months old when we moved from Jenison to uh, Orange City, uh, ended up going to Northwestern as well. And by the time he was just going to start Northwestern, we were back here uh, in Holland, where God called us next at Christ's Memorial, where I served in a number of capacities in Holland. But he went back to Northwestern. And one of his close friends at Northwestern College, they were in the same uh, grade, and they were, not grade, but the same class, and um, uh, they became very good friends. They also lived in the same dorm and the same area in the dorm, and that's where I first got to know Stephen DeVries, because he was a very good friend and still is of our son. Now, I could name you all kinds of other things, so much in Holland, Michigan has changed. And sometimes when we come back to this area, I keep thinking about how different it is. When I, all the things that were different when I was a student, just one of them was the sanctuary was in a different place. I still think I should be looking north when I go from the pulpit here. It shows you how old I'm getting. But you know what I think about more? Are the people that I've gotten to know, so many of whom have connections with this congregation. On the way here, we live on the north side of Holland, and we were going down Lakewood Boulevard, and there's this little section of Lakewood Boulevard between um, River Avenue and before it kind of joins again with what I think is, uh, I can't even remember, the, the road name changes, it's Ottawa Beach Road, but it's not called that there, right by the railroad tracks. And there's a lumber yard on the south side, and the north side there's some homes. And we rode by that this morning, and you know who came to mind? Hank and Cassie. Now, those of you who are older, you know that they lived there for a long time. Cassie died not that long ago. She lived to be a very uh, wonderful age. And I remember that they would invite us often for Sunday dinner after church here, you know, after choir and after Sunday school, we'd go there. And they would visit us sometimes in New Era, and one time, I think, in Jenison. Now, I could name probably 40 more people that I know with connections here, including many of your former pastors. And what is it that we talk about when we get together? North Holland Reformed Church, because this is the connecting point for us. And whether I'm in Sioux Center, Iowa, I, not long ago I preached at an ordination service for Cody Rock, and I was greeting people afterward, and someone nudged me, and I turned around, there was Reverend Punt. Remember him? And Reverend Tenclay, that you had many years ago, is still alive, and he's one of our more elder saints at Christ Memorial, and we visit with him every so often. Josh Van Leeuwen, and now Stephen DeVries. I'm so grateful for Stephen. And you took a bit of a risk hiring someone, or calling someone right out of seminary to come here. And yes, Stephen is young, but as I said to the elders, I've gotten to know him well, and I know his heart. He's not only a very bright-minded young man, but he has a maturity, and maybe you've seen this already, he has a maturity beyond his years. I have grown to love and respect this young man, and I'm sure you do too. So when he asked if I would come to preach here, I 
didn't take me long to say, well, let me look at my calendar, and if it's free, I'm coming. <laughs> so it's a joy to be back here once again. I should mention to you, we have, um, my wife and I are the parents of uh, four children, and we have seven grandchildren, and they're scattered all over the place. Um, God has been rich and wonderfully blessed, has wonderfully blessed us in our lives. I invite you now, I could talk a long time about all this, but that's not why I came. I'm here and I am eager to uh, read to you and help us together dive into a scripture passage taken from the book of Acts, chapter 12. And we're going to read verses 1 through 17. It's a very interesting story of the early church in action. And before we read this passage, I invite you to pray with me. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light. In your truth we will find freedom. And in your will we will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword, and when he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of the unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of soldiers, of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial right after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. Kind of a waiting time here. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. 
Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. So far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. In Lloyd John Ogilvie's book, The Drumbeat of Love, he gives the following observation about prayer, and it's based here on Acts chapter 11. I love this quote. He writes, Prayer is not just to get God to do something, but to help us realize what he has done already and what he is doing right now. It is not an argument to convince God of what we need, but a conversation in which he shows us our need to recognize what he has previously done and presently doing. This enables us to enjoy what he has entrusted to us. End quote. I love that quote. I've learned from that based upon this scripture. And it's true, isn't it? Most of us, when we think about prayer, our prayers, especially our intercessory prayers, are about someone in need or maybe some needs that we have ourselves. And the, the whole technique of our whole prayer life, I mean, we do some time, of course, in praise and thanks to God, but usually the meat of our prayers, the, those things that we bring before the Lord with the most earnestness and the most passion have to do with people that we love and are concerned about or problems that are deeply troubling us and we bring them to the Lord and we define them before the Lord and we say, now Lord, here is the present situation. Here is what we hope will happen and Lord, will you bring about things to go from this reality to this preferred outcome? And it's true, you know, it's, it's not, there's nothing wrong with that. God desires that we come before him and ask these things. We know that, and we've been taught that as, as we live our Christian lives, that we probably ask for so little and therefore we receive so little. And you can go on Christian television stations and Christian radio and you hear preachers and speakers telling us new techniques about prayer. And most of them are saying things like, if you use this technique and if you pray in this way, if you prepare your hearts a certain way, if you use a certain language or a certain way in which that you pray, that you will have better options that God will respond and actually do what you think he should do. Now, just in the way I said that, you know of my bias here. I, I think sometimes we have to be careful of that. Because the purpose of prayer is not just to get God to do what we think he should do, even though it may be very important. We're praying for someone we deeply love who is deathly ill, and we want that person to be healed. We have a, a son or a daughter or a grandchild that is in, a, in the midst of a full-blown rebellion, and we pray for them, and we say, Lord, we love this person, we love this child, we love this uh, young adult so very much. Our prayer is that, Lord, that you would redeem this person, that you would turn his heart. And of course we pray for these things. That is always appropriate. But what I learn in this passage, at least for my own life, is something that is not contradictory to what I just said, but it expands, it completes, and it 
has an opportunity to help us to learn about another focus of prayer. And it has to do with us, not just the people we're praying for. This morning, we're going to see the power of prayer for appreciation as well as anticipation. And the first thing we learn about the church here, the first thing I notice in this passage is that there's, the early church was a praying church. Okay, James was just executed, one of their leaders, one of the original apostles. And Herod had it in mind, according to Luke as he's writing this, that, that Peter was going to meet next. And he actually sent out troops, they arrested him, and they put him in prison. And he would have been executed right away, except for the fact that it was the feast of the Passover, and he knew that it would not be popular. And as you notice in this uh, passage, Herod is doing these things, even though he were king, he was doing it for public approval. And he knew that wouldn't be popular if he executed someone during the Feast of Passover. So he waited. And while he waited, while Peter was languishing in prison, what did the church do? They got together to pray. And they prayed earnestly, it says. Fervently, it says in another translation. In other words, this was not a prayer meeting where you know how it is often in our tradition, maybe... It's a different thing for you, but I remember as a child, but I also remember as a teenager and in college, even though we were always experimenting with different ways to pray, when you get together for a prayer meeting, people sometimes can be so reluctant to say their prayers out loud. And I grew up in a time when, when when you went to a formal prayer meeting in your local church, everybody who prayed, prayed in King James English. Now, I know I'm a dinosaur, but still... That prevented a lot of people from learning how to pray fervently because they were so concerned that they would use the thous and the these and the ists and the, all the kinds of language that we always were exposed to in the old King James Version. It took the intimacy out of prayer. Well, this was a time of prayer when, and in fact, it's, it's fairly unusual that, the, that we find that the Believers in, in the book of Acts and in the Gospels especially, especially in the Gospels, rarely do the disciples gather together for prayer without being directed by Jesus Christ himself. He would bring them to prayer. He would say, even at Garden of Gethsemane, he would say, now you wait and you pray. And then Jesus went out by himself and continued in a very intimate dialogue with his heavenly Father, knowing that the cross was imminent. And sometimes he'd be so weary of that, it took so much out of him, the struggle was so very, very deep within him, then he'd go out and and check with his disciples. This was his support group. These were the prayer warriors. And what were they doing? They were fast asleep. Not very good. Now we do find the disciples praying fervently before Pentecost, and we find them having a little easier time and realizing the purpose of praying after Pentecost, and here they are in a very difficult and desperate situation, and what do, the, what do Christians do when they're in a difficult situation? They get together, and they pray. And when people are together, believers are together and pray, and they're especially praying fervently, Things happen. 
Now, if you're like me, when I get to this point in the passage, I kind of want to know, well, okay, they prayed. Uh, what did they pray for? Ever think about that? Were they praying, well, Lord, uh, it looks like Peter's going to be uh, executed soon. Uh, Lord, give him courage. Give him strength. May he be a witness to other people. Assuming, of course, that he's going to be dead here pretty quick. Now, that's not an unreasonable assumption because um, James was just killed. And, of course, they knew that Jesus had been sacrificed. And God didn't change all of that. That was part of his will, apparently. What then? I sometimes wonder, were they actually praying that, Jesus, or that, that God would intervene in this situation and send an angel and rescue Peter from this and take him as the rest of the text talks about? It doesn't seem likely. If they were praying specifically for that, I don't think Rhoda would have been waiting at the door, or Peter had been waiting at the door, and then when Rhoda told all, of, all the other people that Peter was there, they didn't even believe that was going to happen. Sometimes in our prayer lives, we get really caught up with the how of prayer. Then we think about the why of prayer. You can buy books. You can, in fact, just last night I was going through channels, watching a wonderful music program on one of the Christian channels, and Next came like an advertisement, and it was an advertisement. If you give to this organization, um, they will send you, and if you give a certain amount of money, they will send you a book and a CD and all of this, and this is about the power of prayer. And you're going to have some power thinking. And uh, Wow, that's tempting, isn't it? If I give to this, I'm going I'm to find the right technique to find power so that God will do what I'm asking him to do. Now, it's not all wrong, but it can be very dangerous. We don't, God doesn't exist to do what we want him to do. We exist for what God wants us to do and calls us to do. Well, here we are. The people are praying. They're praying pretty hard and earnestly. They prayed with passion. That's really the only thing we know. And then Luke, I love this part too. Not only is that happening, but then Luke goes into a lot of detail to tell us that Peter was in a prison that was maximum security. Listen to this. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So here he is with all of the, the chains Soldiers next to him, a squad just outside, all of these various doors, iron doors that they had to go through to get out. He's telling us and laying this, uh, painting a picture, let's put it that way, of a very impossible situation. And an angel comes to Peter. And you imagine him, he's sound asleep. Now that's an amazing thing just by itself. If I were in that condition, I don't know if I'd be sound asleep. He was so so deep in sleep that when the angel kind of poked him and said, Peter, wake up. Put on your clothes. Have you ever been startled when you're in a deep sleep like that and suddenly you're asked to do something, you kind of just automatically kind of do it and 
And that apparently is what's happening because all these things go on. And then he says, oh, and remember, put on your cloak too. It's a little chilly outside perhaps. And it's the middle of the night and on they go. The chains fell off the doors. It's like some science fiction movie, isn't it? I shouldn't say that with Stephen not being here. (laughs) His love for science fiction. Anyway, the doors open up. And there he finds himself walking on a street. He's at least a block away from from this prison. And then all of a sudden, it's like, he kind of shakes his head and he realizes. And as the the angel disappears, he's going, oh my, he says, here I am. This really happened. I thought it was a dream. Understandably. If I were in his situation, I would feel that way too. Well, what does he do? He goes to a familiar place. He goes to the house of John Mark. And what's happening there? He comes to the door. Likely, because they are praying with such fervency, he could probably hear them. And he could hear the energy that was coming from that place as the church was gathering. And who were they praying for? They were praying for him. Rhoda comes out and she finds out. She doesn't even open the door. She hears that it's Peter's voice. We don't know what he said, of course, but he apparently said something saying, Rhoda or whoever, this is Peter. I'd like to come in, please. And she was so excited, she ran back into where all this prayer meeting was going on saying, Peter's just outside the door. And what do the believers do? Here they are praying for all this. And they're going, no, no, that can't be true. You must have saw an angel. No, you think maybe it's this angel. That sounds a little crazy in a way, but yet it isn't because, after all, when Jesus was crucified, Jesus did appear to his disciples. There is at least some evidence of this happening before. But it also tells me that maybe what they were praying for was was not really what God was going to do. Because when God's answer to their prayers was done, it was accomplished, and the very personification of the answer for prayers was standing outside that door waiting for entrance, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. Now there's something about my imagination, and I thought, boy, if I were Peter at that point, I think I would have climbed the, if I could have anyway, the walls of that outer level of the house and just kind of snuck my way into that prayer meeting. You know, they're all, imagine them, they're all praying and it's all going on. It's kind of like, you know, going in and, and coming in and then at one moment saying, and then just, you know, start praying yourself with them. And also people go, boy, what's going on here? And watch their faces. Well, that's my imagination. That's not scripture. But think of what was happening there. And for me, the thing that really, what stirs my heart from this entire chapter is verse 16. Well, let me read verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told Rhoda. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. And what is Peter doing, verse 16? Peter kept on knocking. There's something very important about that. Luke is showing us here the perseverance of God in letting us know that he is ever more working with us, through us, and around us than what we realize and are conscious of 
and what we're aware of. Even when they're specifically praying for Peter, they couldn't recognize that the very person that they were praying for was standing right outside the door. But Peter didn't go away. He kept on knocking. What do we learn from this? The first thing I think is, it reminds me of sometimes how limited I am in my preconceptions of what I want and what I think God will do. It helps me to be more bold in my prayers, knowing that God is working on his plan with me and sometimes in spite of me. Do you share this problem too? Are your prayers limited to the careful confines of what you think God will do? Now we could go on for a while, we don't have the time, about what this does to our prayer lives and how sometimes when we pray, we, we, Lord, we, we pray that you will do this, but we kind of know that maybe he won't, so we, we kind of lower it a little bit. But Lord, if this, maybe would you do this instead? Or we pray for the big things and then we say, you know, our big phrase is always, well, if it be your will. That's kind of like a way of saying, well, whatever, Lord. We're not so sure you're going to do this miraculous thing. And we lose our boldness. But the other thing I learned from this is that there are times when we become so preoccupied with praying for an answer that we don't recognize it when it comes. It's there at our elbows, but we don't see it. Let me give you an example of that from my own life. When I was in Iowa pastoring that church, a number of us, a number of the congregations in the region decided, after a lot of prayer and and I guess a a hunger for those who had not yet received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that we wanted to do something about that. And we gathered as churches and prayed about this, and we began to plan um, a series of three evangelistic meetings. One speaker was going to be there. No, I think it was only two nights that he was there. And you know how this goes, and you're, before you decide on it, you think, well, who could we get? And we thought of a great speaker who was a great speaker. He spoke a lot of our youth events, and he's an evangelist. But the kind of speaker who is so effective, he is you crying one minute and laughing another, and then kind of gets you right into the depths of the gospel. So we invited him, and he was able to come. We found the biggest venue we could find in our community, and at that time, the biggest venue, and we didn't want it to be real churchy because we really didn't want this for believers. We wanted people in the community to come to this who may not normally go to a church. So what we chose was the largest gymnasium we could get. And it was in a local high school about 15 miles from our church. So that's what we had. And then you know how it is. You have committees set up to do various things. And it was a little bit like a a Billy Graham crusade. I mean, we were going to have some special meetings. We were knowing that there was going to be an altar call at the end. And we had to uh, train and get people ready to to visit with people and pray with people if they were to come forward when people were called to make a commitment to Christ. You kind of know the routine of this, don't you? But it was a gymnasium. 
And we decided that this was a time in which most churches still were having rather traditional music. And we had a praise band, and one that was kind of edgy for its time. And you add to the fact, not only that, but we were in a high school gymnasium. You know what acoustics are like for a band and drums and all that stuff in a, uh, in a very live gymnastic uh, location, gymnasium? Well, we did all of that. And there was one of those nights that my church, and for me especially, I was in charge of recruiting people, you know, to be at the doors, to be up front as counselors, to do various things. And I came that night, and my wife had to go somewhere else because of our daughters, but I took our son, who was at the time about 11 years old, and he's sitting with me in these folding chairs, and there's bleachers on this side, chairs, and of course all the older people, I did a lot of publicity for this for the members of my congregation. I knew there were a lot of members there, and a lot of them were older people. And because I saw them when I first came in and shook hands with them, thanked them for coming. And then as I sat there and I listened to the band, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to get some phone calls about this. <laughs> this is a little too edgy for that generation. And then you ask people in their 70s to sit on bleachers. That's not a real good thing. And they weren't dressed up because it wasn't church. We didn't want it to feel like church. I could just feel inside of me some of this stuff going on. And I was getting a little nervous and I was also a little, I wanted to make sure, especially after I was hardly listening to the message. I, I finally got into it, maybe 10 minutes into it. And after the music was done and then there was some more music and then came the altar call. And then I kind of, I remember standing up and looking around thinking, all right, are the people that I asked to be at, you know, the place that I asked them to be at, and do we have enough material for them? I'm, all this stuff is going through my mind, and I'm, I'm a preoccupied pastor at this point. And all of a sudden, my son is kind of pulling on my pant leg. Dad, dad, dad. Oh, I'm sure I looked at him with one of these disgusted faces. I finally leaned down. I said, man, what is it, pal? I mean, if, this, if you have to go to the bathroom or something right now, can this wait? And kind of looked at me, and I just thought, oh, this is not the time to be interrupted with stuff like this. He kept. Finally, I finally sat down. I mean, the, the, differential, the height differential here was pretty high, and I, to bend over that, I just sat down. I said, man, what's the matter? And he looked at me and said, Dad... He said, I just accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Gulp. Now, this wasn't Peter knocking at a door. This was my son pulling on my pant sleeve. Pant leg, rather. And it was God saying to me, pay attention. I'm not just answering your prayers, Steve Annermolen, for the people who do not know Jesus. I'm working there, but I'm working with this boy that you love so much, and I want you to pay attention. My son, our son, remembers this to this day. He knows that I use these sometimes as an illustration. It taught me exactly, it reinforced for me exactly what this scripture is talking about. That God is working around us, in us, through us, 
in many more ways than we realize. And we have to become more aware of what he's doing and respond to it in ways that are pleasing to him. In the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, what is it going to take in our lives? Even though we are Christians, even though we know the scriptures well, we know the creeds and confessions of the church, we probably even have the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism memorized. But Lord, how often are we also opening the eyes of our hearts to see what you're doing? Lord, give us the freedom in awareness and the joy of being able to see and to partner with you in the work of your kingdom. And Lord, if for some reason we're not doing it, if we're not responding, if we're like the, the, uh, the church that had gathered in John Mark's home praying fervently, and missing out on Peter, who's standing on the outside. Lord, continue to knock at the door of our lives until we recognize it and answer it. We pray this in Jesus' name.